Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place the vets and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with one of the biggest stories of the week. Not the biggest. I'm doing a separate episode for the biggest, by far the biggest. Of course I'm talking about the Syria situation. So I'm going to start with one of the biggest stories of the week and that is the hearing of Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg in light of the Cambridge Analytica scandal and in truth what this story is about this scandal is the fact that the intelligence arena use social media vehicles like Facebook and Twitter for data gathering and profiling of the population but it's being kept on the level of organizations like Cambridge Analytica this is in the Guardian Zuckerberg on back foot as house grows Facebook CEO over user tracking. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg was given a rougher ride on his second day of congressional testimony on Wednesday the 11th of April as he faced sharp questions about the tech giant's ability to track its users' movements, shopping habits and browsing histories and was at one stage compared to Jagger Hoover. During five hours of testimony, the billionaire entrepreneur revealed that his own personal information was among that handed over to the political consultancy Cambridge Analytica, which harvested the data of up to 87 million Facebook users without their permission. The Democratic Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, reading questions from her constituents at a hearing of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, asked Zuckerberg whether his data was included in the data sold to the malicious third parties. After a brief hesitation, the Facebook CEO replied yes. Eshu called Facebook's terms and conditions around privacy a minefield and asked Zuckerberg one of many blunt questions put to him on Wednesday. Are you willing to change your business model to protect users' privacy? Zuckerberg 33 gave one of many evasive responses. Congresswoman, I'm not sure what that means. On Tuesday, Facebook began notifying millions of people around the world that their private information may have been given to Cambridge Analytica in the worst privacy debacle in his company's history. Zuckerberg and Facebook's Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg have been on media apology tours since the story broke in the Observer, the Guardian's sister Sunday newspaper. The data was collected through an app called This Is Your Digital Life, built by the Cambridge University academic Alexander Kogan. The Democratic Congressman Elliot Engel of New York asked if Facebook planned to sue Kogan, Cambridge University or Cambridge Analytica. Zuckerberg said legal action was being considered and added what we found now is that there's a whole program associated with Cambridge University where there were a number of other researchers building similar app. We do need to understand whether there is something bad going on at Cambridge University. Overall, that will require a stronger action from us. Zuckerberg was presumably referring to Cambridge University's Psychometric Centre, which media reports have suggested worked with Cambridge Analytica on ways to predict human behaviour, although the university denies this. The university said it would be surprised to learn Zuckerberg was only now aware of its work in the psychographics field. Our researchers have been publishing such research since 2013 in major peer-reviewed scientific journals and these studies have been reported widely in international media, it added. These have included one study in 2015 led by Dr. Alexander Spector and co-authored by two Facebook employees. Zuckerberg was widely considered to have emerged more or less unscathed from his near five-hour appearance before a joint Senate committee on Tuesday in what had been billed as a moment of reckoning for Silicon Valley. He was rarely thrown off his talking points by middle-aged senators who frequently displayed the lack of tech expertise, but on Wednesday members of the House were more punchy and willing to interrupt his flow as they asked questions on privacy, surveillance, censorship and politics, regularly asking for yes or no answers which he struggled to provide. In his opening statement, the committee chair Greg Walden, a Republican, quoted the company's early motto, move fast and break things, asking whether the company had moved too fast and broken too many things. The Democrat Bobby Rush of Illinois pondered what is the difference between Facebook's methodology and the methodology of the American political pariah, former FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover. 
Republican Marshall Blackburn said, I can't let you filibuster right now. John Sarbanes, a Democrat from Maryland, said, Facebook is becoming a self-regulated superstructure for political discourse. Are we, the American people, going to regulate the political dialogue, or are you, Mark Zuckerberg? The Democrat Frank Poloni asked Zuckerberg to make a clear commitment to change all Facebook's default settings to minimise the possible collection of personal data. The Facebook founder declined to give a simple response, saying, Congressman, this is a complex issue that I think deserves more than a one-word answer. Poloni replied, that's disappointing to me. They're not going to stop collecting users' data, even if they change the settings, it's not actually going to change anything. They'll still do it, they'll just try to do it more secretly. The only reason they're saying they're going to do anything now is because they've been caught out. If they hadn't have been caught out, then they wouldn't have done anything. It's not because they care, it's because they've been caught out. Mike Doyle, a Democratic congressman from Pennsylvania, raised the Cambridge Analytica matter and asked when the Guardian made the report was that the first time he heard about it. He accused Facebook of turning a blind eye to developers' abuses, adding, There is a real trust gap here. This developer data issue is just one example. Why should we trust you to follow through on these promises? Zuckerberg answered, Respectfully, I disagree with that characterization. We've had a review process for apps for years. We've reviewed tens of thousands of apps a year. The Florida Democrat Kathy Castor told the CEO, a devil's bargain has been struck. Americans do not like to be manipulated. Well, a vast amount of them are, not just with Facebook, but politics, media, religion. The quote goes on. They do not like to be spied on. Facebook now is a volatile place where you're tracking everyone. You are collecting data on just about everybody. I don't think the average American really understands that. You're following Facebook users even after they log off that platform. Zuckerberg tried to reply. Broadly, I disagree with your characterization but was frequently cut off by Castor. She demanded you were collecting personal data on people who were not Facebook users, yes or no. Zuckerberg failed to give a yes or no response and was again interrupted. Castor said, you watch where we go, isn't that correct? He said, everyone has control over how that works, but again, Castor interjected. Are you saying you don't gather data on where people travel? She added, it's practically impossible these days to remain untracked in America, and that's not part of the bargain. Several other members of the House Committee pressed Zuckerberg on whether Facebook was transparent about much information it collects on users and even non-users. Some tech analysts following proceedings from afar picked holes in his testimony, accusing him of conflating different points on the issue of whether users own and control their data. The technologist and reporter Ashkan Soltani tweeted, Zuckerberg's answer to Republican McNerney's question regarding Facebook's collection of browsing history was disingenuous. Facebook does trap browsing behaviour via social widgets, however, these are not stored as individual websites, but instead as interest categories. The Republican David McKinley presented screenshots of opioids available to buy on Facebook without a prescription. Your platform is still being used to circumvent the law, he said. Facebook is enabling an illegal activity and in so doing you are hurting people. You said before you were going to take down those ads, but you didn't do it. Zuckerberg repeated his belief that artificial intelligence was needed to help police activity on Facebook. The Democrat Jan Szczotowski of Illinois also gave Zuckerberg an uncomfortable moment by reading aloud various apologies he had issued in the past for mistakes. You have a long list of apologies, she said. This has proved to me that self-regulation simply does not work. But of course it doesn't. They'll do anything they can get away with, which is virtually anything. Indeed, questions of greater regulation of the tech industry have run through the two days of hearing. Zuckerberg acknowledged... The internet is growing in importance around the world in people's lives and I think that it's inevitable that there will need to be some regulation. So my position is not that there should be no regulation, but I also think you have to be careful about regulation you put in place. I've said before that Mark Zuckerberg is not ultimately running Facebook. He might be on one level, but ultimately others are running Facebook. Whenever Zuckerberg is faced with tough questions, real questions about Facebook and its role, he stutters, he trips over words, he refuses to go into detail or he doesn't know enough of the detail 
he doesn't know what to say and it's clear he doesn't know much of what's really going on at Facebook because he's not the one running it. He only knows up to a point. This is why it's been pointed out that Zuckerberg didn't know what he should know and to take it a stage further, he would know if he was really running Facebook. The idea that Zuckerberg, given his personality and lack of knowledge, is running a giant multinational corporation like Facebook when it has significant links to the intelligence arena is ridiculous. No way is Zuckerberg running Facebook. He's just a front man so people don't ask the question who's really running Facebook. This whole hearing was damage limitation. Just answering with as little information as possible, that which Zuckerberg knows about that is, and getting through it without getting into trouble or too much trouble. Facebook is a psychopathic organisation. People might think that's an extreme word to use, but psychopathy is a spectrum. It goes from the crazy murderous type personality that comes to mind when people hear the word psychopath. But then there's also the other end of the spectrum, characterised by no empathy or remorse, no shame, and doing whatever it takes, even at the expense of others, to get what you want. And this sums up many of the elite-owned giant corporations. Google is the same. The former head of DARPA, the technological development arm of the Pentagon, left DARPA a few years ago and joined Google as an executive to work on the transhumanism agenda. Google is a psychopathic organisation. Google is involved in robotics and developing robotic law enforcement. The robotics Google and DARPA are working on are identical because they're both working to the same agenda. Google is involved, as is Facebook and of course DARPA, with artificial intelligence. Google and Facebook, of course, are in Silicon Valley, which, along with DARPA, is the engine room for transhumanism. And for what transhumanism is, see the previous episode and episode 7. Facebook and Google are also involved in censorship of content that challenges the official version of anything and content exposing Israel and the revisionist Zionist ideology, because Facebook and Google are Zionist organisations. And for what revisionist Zionism is, see episode 10. All three organisations are involved in social engineering, data tracking and profiling. Social engineering is gathering information about people and the way they work in order to use it to bring about a desired change socially and in human society. It's also defined as the use of deception to manipulate individuals into divulging confidential and personal information that may be used for fraudulent purposes and the use of centralised planning in an attempt to manage social change and regulate the future development and behaviour of a society. That's what they're doing, Google and Facebook. They're all working to the same agenda, the elite's agenda. When Regina Duggan left DARPA to join Google and then Facebook, she didn't do it not knowing what she was getting herself into. She knew exactly what she was getting herself into. She knew the overall motivation and direction of Google and Facebook, and that's why she joined those organisations. People like Duggan have far more of a say in Facebook than people like Zuckerberg ever will. Next story now is about 5G and a new brand of light bulbs called LED light bulbs, LED lighting. This is in the Daily Mail. The town facing a humanitarian crisis caused by the radiation from state-of-the-art street lamps. Residents have endured insomnia, nosebleeds and even stillbirths, scientists claims. Radiation given off by state-of-the-art street lamps is wreaking havoc on the residents of Gateshead. According to local scientist Mark Steele, 58, people living in the area are experiencing symptoms of insomnia, nosebleeds and several women have even endured the horror of stillbirths since the introduction of LED lamps that emit 5G radiation. I talk about 5G in episode 8. 
the article goes on. In his circular lane, Mr. Steele is aware of three women who have lost their children since the lights were installed in September 2016, with one giving birth to a deformed child that survived just three hours. This is 5G for you. Mr. Steele, who is part of the IEEE, which claims to be the world's largest technical professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity, said, we are seeing babies dying in the womb as these transmitters are situated outside people's bedroom windows. It's a humanitarian crisis. Earlier this week, Gateshead Council put out a Facebook post encouraging people to ignore theories about the dangers of 5G radiation, adding there is no scientific basis or credible evidence for any of these scare stories. Well, clearly, whoever was behind that, the people behind it, are totally clueless. There is an enormous amount of evidence that 5G is going to be an absolute catastrophe for human health. Not least because people are not told about the effects of it, because people will believe sources of information like Gateshead Council telling them there's no scientific evidence that 5G is unsafe, therefore it's safe, because the council said it. People need a shift in perception if they're going to understand the world. People have got to start rethinking their worldview and reconsidering everything they've ever and reconsidering everything they've ever believed up to this point. Question everything. Do your own research. Take responsibility for your own perceptions instead of just downloading them from an external source. And if people do that, they'll find the world is very different to what they've grown up believing in. The article goes on. According to Professor Ulrich Warnke from the University of Sutherland, EMF radiation, which is given out by light transmitters, causes disruption to the body's nitrogen monoxide system, which keeps cells healthy and controls gene expression. The European Academy for Environmental Medicine, EMF, working group, notes such radiation has been linked to cancer, insomnia and mental health disorders. UK Telecom's regulator Ofcom reportedly plans to launch 5G services such as lamps and cell towers throughout Britain by, wait for this, 2020. What was that I said earlier about looking a nightmare world in the face? There were rumours Gateshead is taking part in a secret government trial by rolling out the technology in a borough before then. This is what they do, they trial, trial in quote marks. They trial a certain thing when they already know what the effects will be, but they're trialling it to gauge the public reaction, and if people don't react, then they play it out all over the place. It's just a way of seeing if and how they can introduce it and do it in one area. It works, then they, can, they know they can expand that to a wider area. Mr. Steele said, We've got people bleeding from the nose in my locality. We've got people who can't sleep from neurological disorders. What about the poor women across Gateshead who are losing babies in early full term? What about the children who will develop cancer from this 5G rollout? Microwave radiation increases miscarriages. These didn't occur before the lamps appeared, says Mr. Steele. Regular Wi-Fi can cause health problems, never mind 5G. Regular Wi-Fi can cause cancer, never mind 5G. Mr. Steele claims EMF's damaging effects are evident in the loss of wildlife from his local area. While driving around Gateshead, which Mr. Steele claims has more than 37,000 EMF-emitting lamps, he said there were no small birds in the surrounding trees. The sparrows have been annihilated. They wiped out the flying insects. In a Facebook post, which has been shared more than 1,200 times, Gateshead Council announced yesterday, streetlights will not induce miscarriages in pregnant women or cause insomnia or nosebleeds, and they are not killing all the birds and insects. Well... Either they're completely clueless and have done no research, or they have an agenda, probably financial, but still probably ultimately clueless even then. Either way, they're responsible for what will, I emphasise will, happen with 5G and Gateshead. 
With Wi-Fi that we've had up to this point, there has been a bit of to and fro about whether or not health effects will be apparent depending on the person and the circumstances. But there's no to or fro with 5G. It's going to be absolutely catastrophic. I linked to a document when I posted episode 8 about 5G where a whole stream of scientists and doctors warned about the dangers of 5G. It's an extensive list of people to say the least. The names and universities or organisations they're affiliated with are at the end of the document. One or two scientists or doctors, you could say, maybe they're just misguided, but not the number that put their name to the document. I'll link to the document again when I upload the episode, as well for people who didn't listen to episode 8. The post adds, the borough is not taking part in secret government trials before 5G is rolled out nationwide. Well, they don't think they are. It adds, the council has been advised by Public Health England, which reviewed guidance issued by bodies, including the World Health Organization, and confirmed that technology carries no health risks. In other words, they took advice from official sources which tell them there's no health risk because that's what they want people to believe to justify introducing a technology. But whenever you, whenever people are told the safe levels are such and such, they're never safe levels. They're just the level at which they can get away with it while still having the effect that they're going to have. Because if they introduced the technology in terms of those in the shadows really behind this, if they introduced the technology at the level they would want ideally, it would be far too obvious that there's a problem with it. So they have to do it in a way where it's not so obvious, but it's still going to have an effect. And we are going to see that effect with 5G, unless we decide we're not having it, because that's the only way it's not going to happen. The Post urges people to share the statement with those badly frightened by the claims and ends with the more people who understand that they are completely false, the better. The Post also says, we don't know how these stories start, but we're happy to report that this is exactly what these are. These tales are completely untrue and you should ignore them. Well, I'll tell you how they start. People who've actually done their own research, people who actually have a mind of their own and therefore take the time and take the responsibility for their own perception to find out the truth. Despite Gateshead Council's claim that they are not using 5G, Mr. Steele said the transmitter operates at 868 to 817 megahertz, that is a specific 5G spectrum. The increase in transmitters, even if they did operate at 2G, 3G, as the Council have stated, would make them 5G. Previous studies have linked such radiation to internal stress, which may lead to genetic damage that can cause expectant mothers to miscarry. Those exposed to the highest levels of EMF radiation are 48% more likely to lose their baby than women exposed to the lowest amounts, according to a 2017 study by the Kaiser Permanente Division of Research in Oakland. The World Health Organization recommends EMF radiation, to which everyone is exposed to some extent, be studied for its effect on pregnancies. This is the same World Health Organization that Public Health England reviewed guidance from when Gateshead Council were consulting them on the effects of 5G. And now this World Health Organization is saying that EMF radiation should be studied for its effect on pregnancies. The World Health Organization classifies EMF as a possible human carcinogen. In other words, it could cause cancer. There's no possible about it and they know it ultimately. But does not consider electromagnetic hypersensitivity a condition. EHS is a claim sensitivity to the EMF leading to headache, fatigue and stress. They say, commenting on the matter, the Parliamentary Assembly for the Council of Europe said waiting for higher levels of scientific and clinical proof before taking action to prevent well-known risks can lead to very high health and economic costs, as was the case with asbestos-leaded petrol and tobacco. 
Researchers from a network known as EMF Scientists, which includes doctors from the University of Columbia, are appealing to the UN to encourage the World Health Organization to develop stricter EMF guidelines while also educating the public on the risks. They don't want stronger guidelines. If there are stronger guidelines, it's harder to introduce it. It's the same with smart meters. Even the American Cancer Association acknowledges that smart meters have not been studied to see if they cause health problems. That's a statement from them on their website. You see, if these things were studied independently, then people would find out there's a problem with them. Ultimately, deep in the shadows, they know what affects this technology, whether it's smart meters or 5G additives in food and drink. They know what effects they're going to have because they've tested it and they know what they're doing. But in the public arena, there's been no tests, independent tests. The stuff is just introduced because it has to be, otherwise people will see there's a problem with it. In January 2015, the French Parliament adopted a comprehensive law that protects the general public from excessive exposure to electromagnetic waves. Among other things, the legislation has banned Wi-Fi in nurseries for children under 3 years old. It also requires primary schools teaching children under 11 to only turn Wi-Fi on when it is being used for specific lessons. As of February 2016, 220 scientists from 42 countries have signed an international appeal directed to the UN and the World Health Organization for protection from EMF exposure. According to EuroPAEM, the only treatment for EMF-related illnesses is to eliminate or reduce the radiation source. Absolutely. I've talked about 5G before, and it's not just one, but a few or so massive stepping stones forward to the transhumanism agenda. And it will also be a massive contribution, unless we decide we're not having it, to the depopulation agenda. Mass mind control is possible from 5G as it is from other technological wireless systems and devices because of the frequency it operates on. The brain operates on a frequency. If you can access that frequency or operate on the frequency of brain activity, then you can implant thoughts into people's minds which they experience as their own thoughts. This is even before you get to transhumanism, which along with depopulation is the real reason for 5G. It's interesting this story should appear this week because I came across an article the other day talking about the impact of the new LED lighting and the effect it will have, not just on eyesight, but on perception and health. This is really something to watch out for. The reason they want these light bulbs, this new system of lighting, is the same reason trees are being cut down in certain areas, to make way for 5G. Because 5G needs lots of transmitters because it doesn't travel well through solid objects, so they need transmitters all over the place. Change of subject now, money. Universal credit. This is in The Guardian. Universal credit flaws mean thousands will be worse off. Thousands of self-employed, agency and zero-hours contract workers will be potentially hundreds of pounds a year worse off at the universal credit, according to research. Analysis by Citizens Advice claims that flaws in the new benefit mean self-employed workers whose earnings fluctuate monthly can receive far less over the course of a year than employees in traditional jobs who earn the same amount. The charity says that unless the basic decade-old design of universal credit is updated, it risks creating or exacerbating financial insecurity for the rising sector of the workforce in non-traditional work. Its analysis shows that a self-employed worker earning £9,750 a year would be £630 worse off under universal credit than an employee with an identical annual income but paid a regular monthly salary. The anomaly will affect people who have set up their own business as well as those working in seasonal occupations such as agriculture and hospitality and workers who are dependent on fluctuating overtime pay. The charity estimates that about 4.5 million people in the UK hold down jobs which vary in hours or earnings each month while a further 4.8 million are self-employed, the majority being eligible for in-work benefits. 
Our in-work benefit system now needs to be able to support labour market diversity, not penalise or increase risk for people whose work and earnings patterns no longer fit traditional models of employment, the report says. Problems are caused by the minimum income floor of universal credit, a complex rule that assumes claimants who have been self-employed for a year or more earn the equivalent of at least 35 hours at the national minimum wage each month. If they earn less than this threshold, perhaps because their work is seasonal or they are contracted to work fewer hours, their universal credit payment will not make up the difference. However, if their monthly earnings exceed this level, their benefit payment is reduced accordingly. The minimum income floor is designed to weed out claimants with bogus and non-viable businesses. The government expects to save £1.5 billion a year by 2022 by applying the rule. The Office for Budgetary Responsibility recently estimated that 400,000 claimants would experience losses as a result. Julian Guy, Chief Executive of Citizens and Value, said ministers needed to ensure workers in non-traditional jobs were not left at a financial disadvantage, despite the labour market changing significantly in the last decade, including rapid rise in self-employment. Universal credit is still better suited to those with regular jobs. A DWP spokesperson said, the minimum income floor encourages people who aren't earning enough through self-employment to grow their business or take on more hours in other employment. Universal credit is a flexible benefit that supports people in and out of work, those on low incomes and the self-employed and it's succeeding. We know that people on universal credit are moving into work quicker and staying in work longer than under the old system. This is the way they sell certain changes in society. This is what they said about the European Union. It's going to make Europe more efficient. Europe can be ruled from a central point. This is what they plan to do with the world government, dictating everything from a central point. An unelected world government take the European Union structure and apply it globally, and that's the structure they want. The world government would dictate to the unions, which would dictate to regions in the end, not even countries. If you've got various sources of decisions being made you can't control and dictate to that from the center but you can if it all comes under the same roof as it were and this is why they want a one world government a one world electronic cashless currency a one world army robotic in the end a world army to dictate world government policy on any national group who don't want to surrender their entire lives to the orders of and dictates to the world government this is why they want all of these to be the only one of its kind because then you can control everything from the center it's not about efficiency it's about control Universal credit is designed to be one overall income, replacing six different working age benefits with a single payment. It's making the system simpler to understand and administer. Theresa May has insisted, but it's not about efficiency again, as I said. It's not about ease of use, it's about control and being able to dictate from a central point. Another story follows on from that. This is in the Independent. Over 400,000 more children will live in poverty by 2021 due to benefit changes, funds report. This article was published on the 2nd of November 2017. More than 400,000 children are set to fall into poverty in the next four years if the government pursues its planned tax and benefit reforms, a new report has warned. Research by the Institute for Fiscal Studies forecasts that under current plans for changes to benefits, including the rollout of universal credit, absolute child poverty is set to increase from 27% to 31% by 2021. Experts have warned that Britain's record of reducing child poverty is at risk of unravelling as a result of the changes. The research, which combines official economic forecasts with planned tax and benefit reforms to project incomes and poverty rates among UK households between 2015 and 2016, shows that child poverty will rise in every region of the country over the next few years. Child poverty is defined as any youngster living in a household with an income of less than 60% the national average after housing costs are taken into account. The largest increases will occur in the North East, East Midlands, Wales and Northern Ireland. 
all areas where poor households get more income from benefits and less from earnings or where more low-income households will be affected by the limiting and means-tested benefits to two children. Tom Waters, an author of the report and a research economist at IFS, said that if the government sticks to planned benefit cuts, it should not be surprised if, according to the official measure, absolute child poverty rises. The larger projected rises occur in areas where families with children are more reliant on benefits than earnings for their income, and where more families are likely to be adversely affected by the new two-child limit on means-tested benefits. Around 7.5 million low-income households will see their benefit entitlement cut by over £500 per year in real terms as a result of the freeze to most working age benefits, the report states. It adds that the limiting of tax credits and universal credit to two children means that some low-income families will receive over £2,500 less in benefits than they otherwise would have. Income is projected to grow by just 4% in real terms over the next four years, which the report authors say is slow by historical standards. And they warn that this prediction could be optimistic, with the OBR indicating that they will downgrade their forecast for productivity growth at the budget later this month. The report comes amid growing pressure on Theresa May to make changes to universal credit, which is being blamed for plunging people into debt and sending them to food banks. In particular, there are calls, including from some Tory backbenchers, for the six-week wait before a first payment comes through to be cut in more than four weeks. So far, number 10 has refused to bow to the pressure, although the change is believed to be under consideration behind the scenes. However, there are also warnings that universal credit is punishing the self-employed, people working part-time, and women, but because payments go to a single household earner, usually a man. It also comes as new research from Child Poverty Action Group, CPAG, found that a lack of affordable childcare and poor opportunities for progression were already holding low and middle income parents back, with almost half of working parents with an annual household income under £30,000 saying they didn't have enough money to support their families. A separate report, published by campaign group Gingerbread, meanwhile, indicated that 165,000 single parents and preschool aged children were at increased risk of going into poverty and debt because of new job seeking requirements placed on them under the universal credit system. It has also emerged this week that benefit cuts and increased levels of poverty across the UK are a primary cause for an unprecedented surge in demand for children's services in recent years, with the cuts to financial support for families causing demand to rise to levels local authorities say they are unable to meet. Alison Garnham, chief executive of CPAG, told The Independent the UK was heading for a child poverty crisis, warning that it is extremely unusual to have increases in absolute child poverty in every UK region and nation on the horizon. So much of the damage to household incomes is being caused by the freeze on benefits and huge cuts to tax credits and universal credits, she added. The Chancellor has the opportunity in this month's budget to reduce the scale of the oncoming crisis by ending the freeze on benefits and reinstating the money that has been taken out of universal credit. Failure to act will jeopardise the life chances of a generation. Campbell Robb, chief executive of the independent Joseph Ranchi Foundation, meanwhile said, These shocking figures show the UK's pride record of reducing child poverty is at risk of unravelling. It could mean an additional 1.2 million children in poverty by the end of the parliament. 20 years of progress is at stake. Unless the government takes urgent action in next month's budget, the biggest drivers of the increase in child poverty are changes to benefits and tax credits, especially the freeze on most working age benefits. This will leave families struggling to cover the rising cost of essentials as benefits fail to top up low pay and for those out of work income stay at the same while prices rise. The Chancellor must lift the freeze in the budget so these projections do not become reality. In response to the report, a government spokesperson said, We are committed to supporting families while making the welfare system fair for those who pay for it and those who benefit from it. There are 200,000 fewer children living in poverty than in 2010 and we are helping families keep more of what they earn by cutting taxes and increasing the national living wage. In particular, the North East has near record levels of employment and unemployment rate in Wales is the lowest on record. 
This is another step towards the Hunger Games Society, which I went into detail about in episode 4. People have to start realising the mentality, the psychopathic mentality going back to the previous story, that is running and directing human society. We have to get over the idea that policies are implemented and changes are made in human society because it's believed to be the best for the people on the current information available and from previous experience. It's not. It's about control. And we even have to get over the idea that people in government and those running corporations and even for those who are aware of their existence, the elite, are just greedy. They're just in it for themselves and they just want to make more money. Yes, that level does exist. Of course it does. But ultimately, society and the world in general changes in line with an agenda, a global agenda for the control and suppression of every man, woman and child on the planet. This is why decisions are made ultimately. I'm writing a book at the moment and it lays out in detail the global elite's agenda and it will show very clearly that society is agenda driven, not money driven. And this agenda goes back a long, long time. And we're looking it in the face as more and more of it unfolds by the day. The mainstream media presents world events and changes in society as random, spontaneous and isolated when they're actually coldly calculated, fundamentally connected and long planned. The tagline of pay-per-view is context and connections because these are the two things the mainstream media misses and without those two things, which includes as part of the context, knowledge of the elite's agenda, then people will never understand human society. This is why most people don't understand human society. It seems so hard and impossible to understand because there's this happening here and there's that event and that change in society and that person and that organisation. How can you know what's coming? How can you know what's going to happen? And it will seem like that unless you understand there's an agenda and what that agenda is. And if nothing intervenes to stop it, then it's going to play out. Also, key is understanding the mass mind and emotional manipulation techniques used to get people to either accept or even call for the agenda's introduction into human society to deal with the problems, the manufactured problems, to which you can offer the solution of the changes in society that you want, which I also explain in the book I'm writing. Once you view society from this perspective, society in the world morphs into clarity. Another story now on the subject of money, but also migration. This is a story in The Sun. Government report states immigration into UK has increased house prices by £11,000 in the past 25 years. Housing Minister Dominic Raab claimed vindication last night after stats suggested migration has pushed house prices up by 21%. The Tory sparked up more with the claim last weekend, but the government yesterday published the calculations which appeared to back up his claim. Critics dismiss them as worse than back-of-an-envelope sums. The Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government Statistics claimed the 140% rise in immigrants living in England between 1991 and 2016 had added an extra £11,000 onto average house prices. The calculations were based on a model used by the now-defunct National Housing and Planning Advice Unit that assumes a 1% increase in the number of households leads to a 2% rise in house prices. The overall population grew from 47.1 million to 54.5 million in England over the last 25 years, which led to an overall increase of £17,000 or 32% in average house prices according to the model. The non-UK-born population grew from 3.5 million to 8.4 million during that period, accounting for two-thirds of the growth in population. This means that immigration accounts for 21% of the 32% population-related increase on house prices. But leading economist Jonathan Port said the calculations are not worth the paper they're written on. He said this is worse than back-of-an-envelope stuff. They're using a model from a Quango disbanded in 2010, and that model was designed to calculate small changes over a small amount of time, not 25 years. 
It just shows that their figures are amateurish. This is just amateur stuff from the Department of Civil Servants who really should know better. The MHCLG was forced to publish the figures to back up its claim that immigration has driven up house prices after the UK statistics watchdog demanded to see its modelling. The Commons Home Affairs Committee boss Yvette Cooper accused Mr Rabb of undermining trust on the debate on immigration by initially refusing to publish its calculations. But after the MHCLG published the data yesterday, Mr Rabb said it delivers clear proof that immigration has shot up house prices in England. He said, I welcome this transparency. Our top priority is driving the reform to deliver the homes Britain needs. But demand matters too and immigration affects demand. It's right that the Migration Advisory Council takes into account the undoubted benefits of immigration. They must also factor in pressures so we achieve a balanced approach. Immigration is unsustainable. You can't let people into a country ongoing. Housing prices increasing plays into the agenda for an end to private housing as the agenda is to move people into human settlement zones. In the words of the United Nations Agenda 21 and into smart cities which are within the settlement zones. They want people in high-rise, narrow living space, crammed together in high-rise flats. As I've talked about before, they want to make vast tracts of land designated not to be used and or made unable to live in, which they've already done in certain areas. So people have no choice but to live in areas that are designated for normal use, to quote a map released by the United Nations of how America could look in the Agenda 21 world. And I'll include a link to the map when I upload this episode. The reason they want people in smart cities is because of the health-destroying effects of living within a sea of radiation and also because of the perception manipulation possibilities of smart and other technology because of the EMF and ELF frequencies the technology operates on. And that's without even mentioning 5G, as I talked about earlier. The smart cities agenda also plays into the transhumanism agenda, which I've talked about before, not least the previous episode and episode 8. These are the connections you don't get in the mainstream media. Now, of course, if you're going to do this, then that's a lot of people to move around and resettle. And this is where the depopulation agenda comes in, which I've talked about before in episodes 3 and 8. Also, in terms of housing, the progressive mentality which supports endless migration with an end to borders also bemoans the fact that there's never enough housing, jobs or affordable health care. Well, as long as migration continues, there never will be enough housing, jobs or affordable health care. I've talked before in episode 2 about the systematic running down of the NHS and how that's part of an agenda. Also, you've got robots and automated technology taking jobs as well. This is all part of creating financial chaos leading to the Hunger Games Society, which I talk about in episode 4. There's another story here that follows on from that in terms of immigration and migration. This is in the Daily Mail. This was published on the 10th of June 2017. Refugee charities are paying people smugglers to ferry migrants to their rescue boats patrolling off Libya, it was claimed last night. A senior Libyan Coast Guard official told the Mail on Sunday he had evidence that aid agencies were stumping up cash for migrants desperate to reach Europe but who cannot afford to pay ruthless traffickers. Colonel Tarek Shanbor said he had obtained bank details and phone records that proved the charities were making payments to criminal gangs who have put hundreds of thousands of migrants into unseaworthy boats, leading to thousands of deaths each year. His claim will raise concern because there have long been fears that Islamic extremists could be among the migrants. Charities patrolling off northern Africa claim they are only there to rescue migrants. But Colonel Shanbor said aid agencies were now encouraging more and more migrants to make the perilous trip. He claimed he had handed evidence of collusion between charities and traffickers to EU border security officials in Brussels, though he refused to go into detail. Speaking exclusively to the Mail on Sunday, he said the non-governmental organisations, NGOs, are adding to the crisis by actively encouraging increasing numbers of migrants. Now we have the evidence they are in cahoots with the smugglers. We have evidence the smugglers call the NGOs directly and there are business deals between them. 
Colonel Shambord claimed charities were paying up to £450 for each migrant's passage. He believes their motives are well-meaning but misguided. Colonel Shambord's extraordinary accusation comes just months after an internal EU report revealed charity officials in boats were in direct contact with migrant vessels and even gave them precise directions to find rescue vessels. This year has already seen record numbers of migrants attempting the perilous crossing from Libya to Lampedusa in Sicily, turning Italy into the front line of the crisis. A Sicilian prosecutor has launched an investigation into alleged collusion between traffickers and charities and accused NGOs of fueling the migrant crisis in Europe. Last month, about 1,500 migrants, among them hundreds of children and pregnant women, were rescued from rickety vessels by one of the charities, Medicine Sans Frontiers, and a leaked intelligence report suggesting more than 6 million asylum seekers, including Syrians fleeing civil war, are waiting to cross into Europe. The huge surge has led to more than 1,200 deaths already this year as smuggling gangs in lawless Libya resort to increasingly underhand tactics. According to the Ministry of Defence, the British Navy has rescued 14,900 migrants in total as part of the EU effort to crack down on the people smuggling trade. Since 2014, when the EU's maritime efforts shifted from search and rescue to border control, charities have deployed dozens of their own missions to fill the gap. Charities including Save the Children and MSF argue their operations save lives near the coast, but critics including the Libyan Coast Guard say search and rescue encourages traffickers and has transformed the central Mediterranean into a magnet for migrants. In a report last year, the EU border agency Frontex claimed all parties involved in search and rescue operations in the central Mediterranean unintentionally helped criminals achieve their objectives at minimum cost and strengthened their business model by increasing the chances of success. In another leaked document, Frontex reported the first case where the criminal networks were smuggling migrants directly on an NGO vessel in a separate case where it said migrants were given clear indications before departure on the precise direction to be followed in order to reach the NGO's boats. A Frontex spokesman told this newspaper there had even been one occasion when a charity boat used its light as a beacon for migrants heading to Europe, but said it had no evidence smugglers were being paid by charities. Meanwhile, Carmelo Zuccaro, a Sicilian magistrate, has launched an investigation into collusion between traffickers and charities and said he was collecting evidence of criminality. Colonel Chambord said that in a desperate effort to stamp out the smuggling trade once and for all, he had resorted to hiring a Tripoli-based militia to patrol the coast with his police force. This is a last-ditch attempt to stop the criminal trade along our coast, that Tajora fighters should be able to dismantle the mafia groups. We are declaring war on the people smugglers this way, he said. Last night, charities operating in the central Mediterranean all denied claims they had any contact with smugglers and dismissed suggestions of payment. A spokesman from Migrant Offshore Aid Station which was launched by a philanthropist millionaire couple in 2014, said MOAS conducts rigorous due diligence on donors, sponsors and partners and abides by codes of ethical fundraising when dealing with both national and private sources of funding. Julian Polke, a spokesman for Dutch charity Jugen Retet, which has one rescue boat off the Libyan coast, said this is entirely false and sounds like attempts to damage our reputation and vilify us. We have never had any contact with smugglers and we would never cooperate with them. They see us as enemies because they think we're fueling the crisis, but the EU is not heavily involved in rescue, so migrants see us as the key to get to Europe. Sea Watch, a German charity with two rescue boats in the Mediterranean, described the claims as ridiculous. MSF and Save the Children, both of which have launched hundreds of rescue operations in the Mediterranean, denied the claims. MSF Search and Rescue Coordinator Michelle Triniti said MSF does not have any contact, negotiations or exchange with smuggling networks anywhere. MSF Search and Rescue boats do not receive alerts or distress calls from smugglers and never have. A spokesman for Save the Children said we do not communicate with traffickers or people smugglers and believe all issues of security and trafficking need to be handled by the relevant European authorities. We do not pay smugglers for migrants. Additionally, we work under the coordination of the Italian Coast Guard and have no direct contact with vessels in distress. We operate in international waters, moving close to territorial waters only if instructed by the Italian Coast Guard. 
I talked in episode 3 about George Soros and he crops up everywhere. Soros funds NGOs which present themselves as charities and self-appointed agencies but are actually fundamentally involved in creating, on one level, the migration crisis. This is in addition to the bombing of places like Libya, Syria and others in the Middle and Near East and North Africa, which George Soros has also had a hand in. Italian Foreign Minister Angelino Alfano has said he 100% agrees with claims by Sicilian prosecutor Carmelo Zuccaro, who was mentioned in this article, that migrant rescue charities NGOs are working with people traffickers in Libya, and that wiretapped conversations prove that NGOs are working with people traffickers to flood Italy with migrants. The way that migrants are supposedly being rescued, because of the way it's done with traffickers being told before boats with migrants set off, the direction to follow to reach the NGO's boats, which are then waiting to collect the migrants. Causes problems with processing information and prompts traffickers to place even more migrants onto unseaworthy boats with little water or fuel. Italian Senator Lucio Milan said NGOs are not saving migrants but basically running a ferry service, public transport for migrants. To paraphrase what he has said. Migration is an elite agenda and it's been made to happen. It's not by accident or incompetence, but by design. And as I've said before, once you know the agenda, you know not only what's planned to happen, but you can see the steps towards it. And you can see things in their true context. And that's the whole point of pay-per-view. So that's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.